Hello and welcome to In Lockdown With, a podcast where I, playwright Kieran Fitzgerald, chats to emerging, established and experienced artists in the fields of theatre, film, television, dance and drama, from Wales and beyond, to find out more about their careers and to see how they've been coping during the coronavirus pandemic. Expect laughs, gossip, and an insight into the careers of some of Wales's best-known creatives. If you enjoy this podcast, please like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Thank you. Hello and welcome to episode 92 of the In Lockdown With podcast. We're back after a brief hiatus and my guest on this episode is a writer for Tabby Lamb. Hi Tabby, how's it going? I mean, I'm doing really well, but my god, I can't believe this is episode 92. Yeah. You are churning them out, Yeah, I haven't done one in like a month though, so it's good to like get back into the swing of it. Um, yeah, 92 started at the start of lockdown and I just kept going, like. Um, That's so impressive. How have kind of the last kind of two years of Covid been for you? I mean, fucking terrible, but I think everyone will say fucking terrible. I think I've been very lucky, and I've been, I've definitely noticed my privilege over the past few years a lot stronger than I necessarily would have without COVID. Mm. Um, So I've been very lucky in that, like, I managed to buy my flat just before COVID, so therefore I didn't have to pay rent through COVID. I could take a mortgage holiday, and my mortgage is much lower than rent would be and I live in London so that meant Mm. I could stay in London whereas lots of my friends had to move out and had to leave and I've managed to maintain a decent amount of work over lockdown as well I managed to churn out a few plays and do a load of courses and things Mm. like that so I've been really lucky it's just you know the world was burning around me and it's hard not to notice that Absolutely, and I think we're now in a time where theatre is back, but Covid's still around and people seem to be, I don't know if it's the same in England, but here we just seem to be ignoring it and getting on with stuff, especially within the arts. It's wild now, when I get on the tube or on the bus, I'm like in the minority as the person wearing the mask. Mm. When I'm at the theatre, I'm definitely in the minority. Theatres have stopped, on the whole, asking people to wear a mask or asking people to be vaccinated or all of those things that we sort of got used to, they're now not doing. And it does, I mean, it does just make me question whether theatre's worth having. I'm like, if, yeah. if we're going to be this elitist and exclusionary and dangerous, like, what's the point? I mean, it, you know the vaccine passports, the COVID passes, they work, they were a good solution, I thought. And yet both the English government and the Welsh government have decided to do away with them. I don't see what the yeah, problem I, was. I think there was some conversation, I didn't, I'll be honest and say that I, on the whole, I tried to avoid COVID news because it just got too friggin' bling. Good choice. With the vaccine passports, I think people were getting worried, I mean, I guess understandably about like government tracking and things like that, yeah. um, which I sort of get, but also like the government trackers anyway, they know us, yeah. they've got our Google data, they've got our phone data, like the world is evil and they've paid for all that data already, so who really yeah. cares? And on that note, I'm going to move on to my first question and ask you... How did you first get interested in theatre? Um, so I was really lucky. I have, I'm from a tiny little village, but my mum is very artsy. She's always, she was always growing up, like painting, going to the theatre, going to the movies and stuff. So I was taken to the theatre at a very young age. And my village also had an amateur dramatics group. So I was 
in the amateur dramatics group I was playing. I played like Nana the dog from Peter Pan when I was eight. Um, and all of those sorts of things. So I've sort of been around it forever. And it's always essentially just been all I ever wanted to do. Um, even when I was like three or four, I was like, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be an actor. Um, and that's what I thought I wanted to do. I thought I wanted to be on stage and yeah. get all the attention. And now I'm learning that that's way too much effort and it really destroys your social life if you're working every single evening. Um, so I quite like doing the more behind the scenesy things of writing and directing and dramaturging and stuff because you get the fun and the excitement and the buzz, but also you don't have to stick in a contract for a year or yeah. 18 months or whatever. Were you a writer as a child? Did you write a lot? <laughs> Sorry, apologies everyone for my cough. I went to mute and then couldn't find my mute button. Um, so yeah, I was never like... I didn't sit down and write plays as a kid, but I would write lots of poetry. Um, I wrote loads of like emo, the world is so awful, my life is so hard, middle class white kid poems about, you know... <laughs> how sad it is that I'm gay and live in a village. Um, and then I would, we would devise a lot of plays. So when I was really little, like the main game we would play, if friends came over, was like, let's put on a play and we'd just yeah. get the parents to sit on the sofa and we'd make up a play in front of them. And I went to, like I said, I went to a youth theatre and I went like quite excessively. So mm. we... I was there from when I was three to when I was 18. Wow. And I did probably four classes a week plus rehearsals. So every single night I was doing like voice and the young actor, musical theater, circus skills, acting for screen, professionals. Like they had all these different classes mm. that we did. And then every weekend we'd be rehearsing for whatever show we were doing at that point as well. Um, so I sort of, learn a lot from that in that we were always given space to create our own work if we wanted we had studios at the theater that we had like full control of and could program ourselves so one of the first shows i directed was an adaptation of the giraffe the pelly and me by roald dahl cool. when i was like 15 and i just essentially i think i said i adapted it but i think i literally just listened to the audiobook and wrote down all the dialogue so, um, so what you're basically saying is that you ripped off the audiobook yeah, and called it an yeah. adaptation. <laughs> but you know what? Roald Dahl's a racist, so it's fine. Um, <laughs> he's a dead racist too, the best kind. Um, <laughs> you're allowed to say that yet. Well, you've said um, it now. So. All of that to say, basically, that I was always making theatre. So even though I wasn't necessarily writing in the way that I do now, I was always creating and really interested mm. in new writing. Like, it was when I was at this youth theatre playbox that I fell in love with the writing of Philip Ridley, who's still one of my favourite mm. writers in the world, and now is also like a bit of a pen pal, and we email quite frequently, and he's really sweet and supportive to like every young queer's work. So that's been a really lovely journey, and that only came about through lockdown as well. I tweeted about how much I loved him at one point and someone DM'd me being like, I've got his email address if you want to chat. And I was like, yeah. That's cool. So like, uh, and then you went on to study directing at Dartington College. Mm -hmm. um, so how did you make the decision to go and what was your kind of time there like? I mean, honestly, I just didn't get into drama school. So I auditioned for drama school, I auditioned for acting courses, I interviewed for directing courses, I had interviews for like community arts courses, and I just didn't get in anywhere. And Dartington is, well was, it doesn't exist anymore, RIP, um, but has this like really long, amazing history of fucking weird work. Right. So my the artistic director of my youth theatre, Stuart, had gone there. So I knew that a lot of the techniques and the devising stuff and the like weird stuff that we did at youth theatre as well would fit in well there. And also, like I said, I just didn't get in anywhere else. So it wasn't it wasn't quite a last resort because I had yeah. a few auditions after I got in and decided actually no, I want to go to Dartington. Um, 
but it was very much I was very much at a point in my life where I wasn't making an effort myself I was just sort of seeing where life took me in my early 20s and now I think I'm a bit more strategic over what I want out of my career and what I want out of my life but at the time I was just coasting and the coast took me to the coast in Cornwall did you know what you wanted to do or were you just a bit oh I'll just do this course and see what happens I've always known I wanted to work in theatre but what that meant I haven't always known so for a while I thought I would just work in theatre marketing and I did work in theatre marketing I had a day job doing that for years and I just knew that I wanted to be in this world and in this community and there were like goals that I had of like venues I wanted to work at or uh, shows I wanted to do but I would have sort of been happy whether I worked at them like in a PR capacity or in a front of house capacity or as a writer or performer in the shows I just wanted to be around those places and a lot of those opinions have changed because like one of the dream one of the dream venues I had when I was younger I'm now like oh god I would never work there it's so problematic it's really interesting though how your kind of viewpoint changes on where you see yourself as you get older like and how naive you are when you're kind of just starting out. Um, Totally. And I think also how, for me especially, for me it was how lazy I was starting out. Like, not necessarily, like I was always doing shows, like I said, I was always making work and doing whatever. But it's the the extra bits on top of the making work that actually help sustain a career. It is the, the awful networking and the... PR and they're making sure that the right people are talking about you and it's there's so much gumph and I know a lot of people say like write a good play and people will come like it's all about the quality of the work and yes that's true but like it's also not yeah like it is a lot this industry is so much about smoke and mirrors and making yourself making people think you're important making people think you have something to say or something to show and I don't know I mean we all and do that's the whole point we are all individual unique artists but, but if you have to make yourself look more individual and more unique somehow but somehow you know within that individuality still if you're a non-disabled cisgender white man straight right man like it still seems so much easier if you don't have any, like, protected characteristics. Yeah. I think it's one of those things as well, isn't it? Because those sorts of people as well so often don't see it. So yeah. people who don't have the protected characteristics or whatever, they'll complain about every single casting or job call that says, like, we are especially interested in people from meaner backgrounds, people with disabilities, people who are neurodivergent, whatever it is. They always complain about those jobs, but they always bloody book them themselves anyway. Mm. Like, they always will get maybe one or two token, and it's always either as well. You either get a token trans person, a token person of colour, or a token person with a physical disability. You will never get those people working together, well, rarely get those people working together, and those identities will rarely intersect. Like, I know some incredible, like, disabled trans people of colour who are Mm. incredible actors who would never get seen because people are just like... It goes back to that, I don't know if it's a standard thing, but they used to always be. I always remember that, like, the fictional one-armed black lesbian... Right. Do you know what I mean? Where people are like, oh, what's next? What's happening next? next? Oh, my goodness. Next thing you know, you're going to have a one-armed black lesbian as Bond. And I'm like... (laughs) Fuck yeah, that's the bond I want to see. <laughs> but when those pe- people don't want to admit that those people actually exist, they want to keep it in their heads as this like fake. Well, won't gone too far thing. I I had a conversation like a year ago with the Welsh Language National Theatre, who basically said, "Sorry, there aren't any disabled actors who speak Welsh," and then I had to prove to them that they were. And it's like yeah. that extra work that we've got to do 
just to get representation for our communities that we're not being paid for. It's literally their job. They, they get year-round funding to develop talent and meet new artists. We don't. No. And yet we're the ones doing that work. And they're the ones who are always hiring their mates, hiring the same actors, hiring from the same small pool. And it's like, no, just expand your mind, please. It's like, it, it's worth that we shouldn't have to be doing, but it's a large part of what we do. And, unless we, we continue with it, change isn't going to happen. Um, Agreed. So what, what were the challenges for you, basically off the back of this, what were the challenges for you with breaking into the industry when you were starting um, out? So I guess I sort of started out in the industry before I was fully out as trans. Right. So initially it wasn't necessarily trans barriers. It was, but so I'd studied in Cornwall for three years. So I didn't have any connections in London. I um, studied performance art. I didn't study theatre. Um, so it was a theatre directing course. But our theatre directing lecturer left after like a week and then we were just put in with oh, no. all of the performance art kids and um, they never updated our title. So I have a directing degree whilst having only done like two directing lectures. Um, <laughs> and we just didn't really know how, I just didn't really know how to get into the industry, to be honest. Of the people from my degree, I think there's two of us who still work in theatre and one works exclusively in Italy and Italian language theatre, so I'm not entirely certain what she does. Um, I just know that she posts a lot of pictures from theatres. Um, and I think the hardest thing was just knowing what the fuck to do, mm -hmm. to be honest, because we had all of the tools to play with once you're in a rehearsal room. But how do you get to the point of getting in a rehearsal yeah. room? How do you get to the point of being able to afford to tour a show and all of that? So the first show I made was made with this girl, Holly, who's one of my best friends, Holly Norrington. Um, we went to uni together, and she also went to my youth theatre, but we didn't know each other then, because right. it was a big youth theatre. And we made a show, and we made it by... So when we both graduated, we both got full-time jobs, because we needed to, because life. And I moved to London, and Holly stayed at home and lived with her dad to save some money. Yeah. And every single weekend, I would get the train down and we would rehearse in the room above Holly's dad's garage. Like, it had, yeah. like, a slanted roof thing. We had to duck to get into the corner of the stage or whatever, and we would just make it up. And for about a year and a half, we just spent every weekend messing around, playing, trying to work out what sort of yeah. thing we wanted to make. And then after that, we took it to Brighton Fringe and to Camden Fringe and to Wimbledon Fringe and a load of little regional fringes yeah. and stuff because we couldn't afford Edinburgh. We were doing all of this. Like, we we did literally everything ourselves. So Holly painted the poster. Um, we did all of the applications to all of the venues ourselves. We built the set ourselves. We designed the set ourselves. It was completely self-sufficient. And we had no money to pay anyone else, so we had no money to pay ourselves either. No. And I think it was once... Once we'd done that, it was less that the experience taught us what to do. It was more the people that we met along the way taught us like, oh, there's this thing called the Arts Council that will give you some money. And there are these people called producers who will do the, some of the things for you. And, you know, you could get a set yeah. designer. And like, it was very much, it felt like starting from scratch, but in quite a fun and exciting way, but mm. also in a way that like, was only possible because we were two like white middle class people who had full time jobs. Like it was a very yes. privileged thing as well. You wouldn't have had those connections if you were yeah totally. And just we like we lived in different cities. If I hadn't had a job and if I hadn't been like working well, I wouldn't have been able to afford to get the train to Holly every weekend. Transport like, that was forty so quid every weekend, Transport. which is like essentially rehearsal cost. And, like, what kind of platform was that for you? Like, did you... I, I guess it's those connections that you make through doing that, mm. I suppose. Because it was... What was useful about that show, really, was just 
we got some all right reviews. We didn't get amazing reviews, but we had like one five star, a couple of four stars, and then a bunch of like two and three. But we had some good quotes that we could put on posters for our next yeah. shows. And we had, and we got to like, we did two UK tours with that show. And like they were small and we completely funded them ourselves. And yeah. half of the performances were in village halls and whatever, but we still, it still happened. So we met people from around the country. We met artistic communities around yeah. the country. We met venues and like that was definitely the start of me trying to like make a name within the theatre industry and like yeah. trying to meet people and just not being isolated in Cornwall and being able to get out and see shows and meet people as yeah. well was really important I think. And I'd like to talk a bit about your, your process, your writing process. Do you have one? Who has a process, Kieran? That's far too grown up. Well, apparently, people I've talked to have processes. Right, like... so I'm on the 5035 at the moment, and we had cool. a session with Ross Willis yesterday, who's one of my favourite people anyway, regardless of his insane talent. Um, but he was talking about um, splurges and plotters, and how apparently there are two different types of writing you have the splurges and you have the plotters and they do what they say on the tin but you what he was saying is that splurges need to learn to plot and plotters need to learn to splurge and i'm definitely a splurger who is trying to teach themselves plot at the moment um so i'm yeah i think my process really varies based on the based on the project and based on my mental health really right. sometimes i really am able to sit down and write for a good few days and get it all out of me and sometimes i can't write for like a month because my brain is made of bees and, and like that that splurge draft that first draft what does it what does it look like or what do you take out of that first draft oh god the, um the it looks like a mess yeah. It always looks like a mess. There's usually far too many monologues and it's far too, like, just talking. Um, and, like, I love... That's one of the things I love about theatre is that it is pretty much all dialogue. Yeah. Whereas for TV and film, you have to write so much more around that. And I'm like, I'm interested in people. Mm. Um, but the splurge draft is usually, for me, it's, like, overly flowery, overly poetic. Usually every three sentence i just repeat the last three sentences in different words so <laughs> it, it gets very long-winded and i just have to cut it all down to its barest bones um and usually that's quite hard to do on my own so i'll work with a dramaturg or maybe yeah. with a director who's developing it or just ask mates like i'm really lucky in that i live with an incredible uh trans director i live with a Cool. an incredible person who like I trust with my life and we share work often and give each other feedback on work um Amber Sinclair Case they are amazing um and so they really help and support and like I have lovely little writing communities like Kieran and I met doing a course together so um yes. often one of us will post in the group chat being like anyone got time to read over this or anyone got any advice on that and I think a lot of my process at the moment is I don't want to say stolen but inspired by yeah. the people who I work with and the people who I get have got to know over the past few years because I only went freelance just before the pandemic right. I had a full-time job until the summer of 2019 so it was like six months before the pandemic and I haven't really learned how to be a playwright in the real world right. yet so all of my experience has been under lockdown, like my first proper full show since lockdown is opening this summer. And I have no idea what the hell I'm doing because it's, I'm just very used to being a pandemic playwright. Yeah, and I think people who maybe are emerging or have tried to emerge since 2020 will have to also have another kind of learning curve going back into the real world and like it's going to be really interesting for those people like us I think, I think I feel I think part of the reason why I try not to complain too much about the pandemic is that I just feel so friggin lucky that my show opened beforehand mm. 
like I like still the last fringe was two and a half nearly three years ago now and normally you get a group of shiny exciting new artists come up from every fringe and yet we haven't had those shiny exciting artists for two years so I'm really lucky in that in some ways I'm still considered that shiny exciting new artist even though in the real world I'd be like two generations ago by now like there'd be new exciting Mm. young queer trendy artists like I'm already finding that like I'm doing certain shows and whatever and I'm not the young cool trendy one anymore I'm like (laughs) the mama bear in the corner and I kind of love that like I'm not cool or trendy I don't go out I'm an old broad but it's been interesting to see that sort of happen in real time and go from like being the shiny new one to being like oh you're the next one that because it's not even it's never anything to do with your talent it's just who the industry has decided fits the bill for that week yeah who is gonna be who's the most palatable trans person or who's the most um i don't know it it very much this might just be me but like it's very much who is the most palatable person from this community like who is the Mm. most able-bodied disabled person who is the most passing trans person who is the most light-skinned person of color like it's very this industry Mm. is so still so racist so ableist and everything is if you i don't know if i'm speaking out of turn here but if you can pass as non-disabled or cis um or white you get an easier time totally you get so much more work and again it's the sort of thing that you still get those white non-disabled cis actors complaining that we're getting seen for everything it's like no it's just that there are two extra of a minority in the room with you yeah but the other 20 people in the cast are all still white not disabled cis people like they're just not used to seeing us in the real world mm, absolutely and the more we get our work out there the more that we are going to see mm-hmm. in that regard and the way that you've got your work out there is through you know in many ways you've done lots of things that i want to talk about since you've been gone which is an autobiographical account of growing mm-hmm. up queer in the northeast so, writing something close to personal experience, what, yeah. what was that um, like? It's a journey, Kieran, I'll tell you that. In, um, so I really enjoyed the writing side of it. I think creating that show, I felt some of the most creative and like inspired I've ever felt. Um, it was also really exciting. It was the first show that I was creating on my own. So it's the first show that I had like authorship over and I could decide yeah. the team and who was coming in and all of that. Um, and I'm really, really proud of the show and how it turned out and everything we achieved with it. Um, we were meant to achieve so much more, right. being, but the world cut that short and I'm actually really grateful of that. Okay. Because um, I found performing it really hard. Um, the writing of it helped me process a lot of emotions, helped me process a lot of thoughts, helped me sort of like say goodbye to the friends. So for those people who haven't read or seen it since you've been gone is about my college friendship. So two of my best friends from college um, died within a few years of leaving college and it's updating them on everything that's happened with my life and my gender since then. Um, and writing it was gorgeous. It felt like I was writing directly to them and I was writing them a love letter. And it was really important to me as well that like the show got published because Jordan, who's sort of the main person the show is about, she always wanted to be a writer and um, never achieved that. So I wanted to get her name in print and dedicate the book to her and all of that. But then having to relive that trauma on stage every single night was hell. And in Edinburgh, Mm. when I did it, I had a huge emotional breakdown and it, like the show almost didn't happen. And Mm. I had to move producers by the time we transferred to London and all of that. And I learned a lot and we set up a lot of emotional support and self-care and external care as well into the London run Mm. and into what would have been our international tour that was meant to start in April. 
April 2020. But it was still really hard. And the first like couple of months of the pandemic, I actually spent grieving those friends again, even though it's mm. been years since they died, but because it was still so yeah. fresh because I've been reliving it every time and I had to sort of get over the trauma of doing that every single night. So um, yeah. I said after that, no more autobiographical work. Mm. But I am working on an autobiographical show for Five Eight Three at the moment. But it's also like it's like um, do, you, do you think it's like auto fiction? So it's inspired but not mm. completely. And I won't form in it, which is going to be fine. Do you think I was going to ask you if another trans person were to perform or would have performed since you've been gone? Would that have made it easier or more difficult for you? Do you think? Um. So. Initially, I wanted someone else to do since you've been gone. I wanted to hand it over. But I think because it was my first, like, major thing as well, I I just didn't know enough people to know who I could trust to hand it over to. And it was such a personal story that it would have felt, at the time, it would have felt weird if I hadn't done it. Yeah. Um, and also, at the time, like, I wasn't necessarily aware of all the negatives of it like like I said I'd always wanted to be an actor and thought that's what I wanted to do mm. and I probably thought somewhere in the back of my head that I was writing this play essentially to showcase me as an actor to get more acting work right. rather than to showcase me as a writer so that I get more writing work which is thankfully how it's worked out um, because I much prefer that but at the time there was a lot of pressure on me to sort of be the face of it, I think. Yeah. Um, and that was both exciting and scary at the same time. Um, let me go back. And that, that pressure you talked about before, but the pressure on queer people to make autobiographical work, mm. exploring trauma. Um, do you feel like there's a pressure to do that in order to be seen as mainstream? Or is it, like, is that... I think it's the pressure to be seen full stop. Right. Like, and I think it's something that isn't ju doesn't just apply to trans people. It applies to sort of anyone from any minority, really. We are... We're expected to break out with an autobiographical solo show yeah. because it's cheap to produce autobiographical solo work because you've only got one actor. You usually don't need a dramaturg on solo work or at least on autobiographical solo work because you've got an inbuilt structure and time process. Um, drawing from your own trauma means that like, the mainstream, in my case, cis audiences, get to learn from my pain but don't have to experience yeah. it um, and they get to sit back and watch from a safe distance and learn from me it's not about them being entertained it's not about them wanting to see the show it's about them centering themselves in their experience and learning from my emotional labor really but and you, that's you are not an infomercial you should never be an yeah. infomercial <laughs> yeah fully and I think what I've done since since you've been gone is really think about my audience more and not think about the wider theatre and what the industry expects or what the yeah. industry wants us to do, but actually think about who who do I want to speak directly to? And that is just other trans people. Mm. And if other people like my work, great, lovely, but I'm not writing it for them. I'm yeah. writing work specifically for trans people because I find especially with trans stories, they're almost always created by cis folk and they're almost always just not safe for trans people to watch. Okay. They're triggering in their portrayals of transphobia, in their portrayals of medical transition, in their portrayals of like our life experiences and things. And I want to make work for trans people that isn't triggering and has a glimmer of hope running through it, really. Mm. I don't want something that's just like, look how bad it is look at all of the trans sex workers being murdered look at all of us coming out and then our wives leaving us and us ending up destitute or whatever i'm like no let's talk about like fun shit yeah that echoes so much of the stuff that i've experienced of disabled narratives 
written by non-disabled writers, how terrible it is to be disabled, what a tragedy, how inspirational we are. Uh, how brave we are. And the common denominator is the writers are cis, in your case, and non-disabled in mine. So we need to be given the platform to tell our own story. 100%. And that's one of the things that I've really tried to do as well with my, like, extended 15 seconds of theatre vein (laughs) is bring other queer and trans artists up with me, make sure... Like, at the beginning of last year, I partnered with 45 North to commission three new plays from trans playwrights, which were developed and are still in development. And we paid them and gave them dramaturgical support and gave them workshop space and stuff. And it is all about, for me, I don't want to be... I don't want to be, like, sucking up to rich old white men and work my way up the theatre ladder and get to like the top or near the top and be like, oh fuck, I'm alone up here. Everyone's a dickhead. I wanna like just network with people who are already on my rung of the ladder and then we can help each other climb. Or we could just happily stay put, that's also fine. Like I just wanna be surrounded by other wonderful artists rather than like gatekeepers. Absolutely. So I want to talk about your play, Darling, which is an audio play inspired by Peter Pan um, through a queer lens. So first of all, the medium, writing for audio, um, what did you find with the challenges of writing for audio compared to theatre? You're, you're on mute, Tally. Sorry gang, I muted myself so I could cough and then forgot to unmute. <laughs> So for me, writing for audio is both a blessing and a curse. It's sort of like, it's the best bits of theatre and TV together um, because you have to think more visually than you do in your dialogue in theatre. But you can't, I mean, you could throw in like stage directions or whatever if you wanted to or a narrator or something, but we didn't, I didn't choose to for Darling. So it's about having your action come through dialogue and having your action come through the character and where that comes from and I found that really interesting especially so I am a massive Peter Pan nerd like Peter Pan is my favourite book my favourite play my favourite everything just love it don't know why I know Jane Barry's problematic I know the book's racist all of those things (laughs) but something in my heart as a child was like that's okay He's fine. He might have been a paedophile and he was definitely a racist, but we like him. Um, Obviously, we don't necessarily love him, but just that magic sort of stuck with me. And I've always wanted to do a queering. So I've had this sort of idea in my head forever. Um, And then to be able to do it with David Hoyle, who Mm. is like one of my idols. um, He plays Darling in this version. And it's, it was just really, it was a joy, actually, because there was no... It was written in the pandemic. It was, I'd started writing it before it got commissioned and I just tweeted about it. And 45 North got in touch and were like, let's talk. And I am really proud of it. I think Joe Chiaochi, who directed it, is incredible. The music by Nguyen is gorgeous. And the thing I found the hardest, which wasn't even that hard, this was very much a splurge play. This was very much a just get it out. Um, But in the, the redrafting, it was notes from 45 North and Chess, specifically at 45 North, who's an incredible director and theatre thinker and dramaturg and whatever. And um, I hadn't thought about who the audience were at all. So I was telling this story and I was talking through all of this, but I hadn't thought about, like, why is Darling speaking out loud? Who is Darling speaking to? Are they, is it just their thoughts in their head? If so, are they talking to themselves? So the audience becomes Darling or and putting in this sort of yeah. a framing device that you wouldn't necessarily have to on stage or in TV because you could just see who they're talking to or you could just be the audience. But when yeah. you're listening to something on your own with headphones as well, it's sort of, it's, you can have a more intimate experience with a story. So it's 
you can play with who the audience are a little bit more, which is where we then sort of made the audience tink a little bit. So the audience are following um, Darling as the the version of Tinkerbell that exists in this world, Tink. Mm. Um, And it sort of... It covers a lot of stuff that I've been wanting to talk about in my, like... I never want to call myself an activist because I don't think I do enough work to be an activist, but in my sort of more politically sided work about like the gentrification of queer politics and of queer charities and the sort of mainstreamification of a lot of these sort of like underground issues and how the especially the London queer community can sort of assimilate and right. become part of the problem more than part of the solution at times um, and being able to do that through like a bit more of a magical imaginative lens yeah. was really fun. And I, I suppose, like, it's... Where, where, where is that line between creating a piece of drama and, you know, putting the points across the really important points that need to be in there? Yeah. Uh, and finding that balance is really important, I guess. Yeah, totally, because it's got to be... It's got to be entertaining. Like, at the end of the day, yeah. if people just wanted to be educated, they could, like, watch a, watch a documentary or yeah. something. The whole point, I think, of drama is that in some way it has to entertain, but then you can... I don't know, like, all of my work is informed by my life and I've moved through this world yeah. as a trans person in London, so all of my work is informed by that, which makes my work inherently political in a way that a cis white man's work isn't necessarily Um, and I think it's there's something problematic about that in itself and interesting about that in itself Mm. as well I think what we expect from our artists should change in some way but I don't know how do you think if you wanted to write a play which didn't have any connections to your identity like just do you think there would be like a wise to have you writing that almost a judgment that you weren't do you know what I'm saying am I making sense yeah I do I so I've been thinking about this a lot recently actually because I'm like I said I've got a show opening at summer this summer (laughs) Um, I'm not allowed to talk about it yet but I am it's fine um, I've got a show opening this summer that is an all-trans cast. Yeah. And I've sort of been thinking forward towards what projects I'm working on next, what ideas I want to bring out. And I don't necessarily know if I'm always going to tell trans-specific stories, but I'm always going to have trans people in my shows, yeah. in the teams of the shows, and, like influencing the work yeah like i've always had it's never going to happen because friggin chichester have just announced a production but i've always wanted to do a production of the famous five that never references george's gender but just has a trans guy playing george like it makes sense to me that george would be a trans character um but like i wouldn't necessarily want to explicitly write it into the text a scene where george is like hello everybody i'm george and i like lashings of ginger beer and breaking gender constructs um even though that's quite funny maybe i would write that in um but you know i mean i think there's i'm really interested in like work for young people as well i really want to work with uh shows for kids and for like baby audiences as well and i think a really good way of just introducing people to queerness and transness in general is just Mm. by having them around i don't have to write shows about trans people to cast trans people and i don't have to write shows about trans people to talk about discrimination or anything either there's a lot more fun things you can do with it i think Mm. i'm gonna move on Slightly. Um, I want to Let's talk about T for T, which is about dating as a trans person in the early days of the internet. But I want to talk specifically about putting the internet on stage. 
and favourite conversation. How so, do you, how do you do that? Well, first of all, would you like an exclusive here, Kieran? Yes, please. So my play that is opening later on this year is called Happy Meal, and is the full length version of Team for Two. Oh. So it is a full length on stage internet rom com about two trans people. Is it and is it still all on the internet? It's still all on the internet. Yep, every scene is a different website. Every scene you move through the how the internet looks, how it develops, how their connection develops throughout the time. Um, and presenting in the internet on stage is something that I am so obsessed with and fascinated by because I'm such an online person. Like I've been on Twitter since I was like 15. I'm constantly on TikTok, all of these different things. I'm just your very average standard millennial. And I think so many shows, where so many shows fail, is the inclusion of the internet. Like even big mainstream shows, like I love, I love everybody's talking about Jamie, right? It's really fun. Mm. But he does seem to live in this weird version of present day where the internet doesn't exist. Yeah. Like, he gets told that Loco Chanel is the most famous drag queen in the world by Loco Chanel, so he just <laughs> believes it. Like, he's supposedly never heard of RuPaul, or like, all of these things that I'm like, that's just not the world that we live in anymore. Yeah. And I think a lot of on-stage drama, actually, with the invention of, like, the internet and mobile phones, that so much tension is actually gone from theatre, because you, if you were thinking, oh, well, if that happened, you'd just call someone to come and pick you up. Or yeah. if you got lost in the woods, if you're if you're doing Midsummer Night's Dream in modern dress and they're getting lost in the woods, I'm like, babe, they just get Google Maps out. Mm. Like, it's so finding ways to incorporate the internet in truthful ways, but also having like fun with it mm. and not being too rigid with what the internet can do. So one of the things I found harder. When I started writing it, I was like, okay, if they're going to be on different websites for each scene, each scene, their chat functionality is actually going to be different. Yes. So there are certain scenes where they're on certain websites where you actually wouldn't be able to chat. So you'd only be able to like play games or like send pokes or whatever. So having some like, um, having giving myself the creative freedom of like, just because they're on Neopets doesn't mean they can't talk to each other. We're just you're going to yeah. have to believe that that works anyway. And I think that's totally fine and actually quite freeing and quite fun because it's meant that I can invent chat functionalities and I can invent the ways of these working, but it's all, it always stays very true to mm. the internet at those times in the early 2000s because that's when I was interneting. Yeah. So I have the lived experience of growing up on on those websites as a queer yeah. person and i think we also when the internet is on stage it's usually very negative it's usually like the nether or something where like the internet is this dark scary place which it 100 can be but like so can school so can yes anywhere and what i really like about happy meal is that we're exploring like the options that opened up to queer people because of the internet and the community yeah, that people got yeah. to build because of the internet. Like there are kids now who grow up watching trans YouTubers and trans pop stars and it's just normal. Yeah. Whereas like YouTube wasn't invented until I was like 16 or something. So it's amazing to me that we can reach those people and whatever. And get to see people like them on YouTube, on TikTok, whatever. Uh, it's mm. less isolating in the spaces. Yeah, totally. I am going to run. Because um, I would like to talk about, it's kind of linked really, we're talking about communities. Theatre Queers, which you set up, is a regular meetup for people in the theatre industry. How did you decide to set it up? So, Theatre Queers came about um, before I made Since You've Been Gone, when I was still making work with Holly. And Holly, like I said, one of my best friends, but cis-het woman. 
Um, and I wanted to find more queer people just in general, not necessarily to work with, but I wanted to find queer people in the industry whose work I could support, whose work I could go and see, whose work might inspire me, who, like, a multitude of selfish reasons, basically. I was like, I don't know any people. So um, I looked around to see if there were groups, to see if there was anyone doing anything, and I I just couldn't find anything. Um, So this was in 2017, I think. 2016, 2017, I can't remember. Um, And it was at Edinburgh Fringe, and it was, I was like, I guess I'll just find something. I guess I'll make something if it doesn't exist. So I set up a Twitter account and spoke to the venue I was performing at in Edinburgh that year and was like, would you mind if I had a bit of a meeting in the bar every Monday for a couple of hours? And they were like, yeah, sure. And that's all it was for the first year. It was just, we had a reserved corner of a bar um at the underbelly for four weeks and then we did that for a few edinburgh's and we did it until when i did since you've been gone we had it going again and then and then at the start of 2020 so theatre approached me and asked if i wanted to make it a year-round thing and have it in london and i was like well i'm based in london that sounds great let's do that and the plan was that we'd run London for a few months, like, work out the kinks, and then essentially, like, franchise it out to other cities and other areas with, like, a, this is how we run it, but you do it however you want. We're not, this is build a queer community in your area. But then, that we only had, like, three in person in London anyway. Um, And we've been on Zoom ever since. So for the first year of the pandemic, we met weekly, and now we meet fortnightly, um, and it's every other Thursday from 7 till 9.30, and people drop in and can do whatever they want, really. So sometimes people come in and are like, I'm on a deadline, I've got to submit this by 9pm, can you just hold me accountable? I'm not going to speak, but every now and then check in that I'm working. And sometimes people come in and like, I've had a really shit week, I want to talk right. about it. Sometimes people are like, did you watch last week's Tiger King, or whatever it is people can use it for whatever they want and we we create breakout rooms if people want to have more intimate private conversations to try and emulate that like you're in a bar with a group yeah. that can also go off to the smoking area sort of vibe and you um, you've had people from scotland germany wales australia canada yeah, literally people have come in from around the world throughout lockdown which is so lovely and it's meant that the community really does feel I don't want to say smaller because that implies that it's shrunk but it feels much more accessible to me and hopefully to some of our attendees as well hopefully that, like I said, I set it up essentially selfishly because I wanted to meet people but I do hope that other people have benefited from it as well And if people want to get involved um, what can they do? If people want to get involved, well there is a page on my website, which is tabbylam.com, and just click on the Theatre Queers button. You can follow us on Twitter, at Theatre Queers, or on Instagram, at Theatre Queers. Um, and I also post about it from my own personal Twitter and Instagram accounts, um, which is my Twitter is at the TabbyLam, and my Instagram is at BadGalNB. And I'll put those links in the description of this. What a professional you are, Kieran. Well, most of the time. Um, so we met through the Ollie Lansley Mentoring Scheme. Um, by we did indeed. World Wild Writers, it's now called. I know. Like, I don't know why they changed the name. Um, so applications were just closed for this year's mm-hmm. scheme. Um, how did you find the experience? Maybe we can compare how we found it. Um, so the, it was a wild one, wasn't it? Because it was yeah. the height of the pandemic. So it was when literally nothing else was happening. And we didn't know what to expect from the course either. Like, Wild Child at the time just tweeted out, like, any emerging writers from marginalised backgrounds looking for something to do. It was literally that vague, the wording, I think. And I just replied to the tweet and then maybe sent them a video of me talking, I think. Yeah. Um, Like, being like, what I do and why. But I'd been eyeing up the idea of getting into TV for a while mainly just because the money is so much better um but then also theater like 
died for two years yeah. and I was like, I need to retrain. And I couldn't afford to do like a screenwriting MA or anything like that. Um, and in stepped Ollie, who is very experienced at writing yes. TV and has written loads of TV and understands that world so well and introduced us to so many people. And like the pilot that I wrote on that course, I don't think it's very good, Kieran. Okay. I think my pilot is messy and a bit mediocre, but I think that what I learned from that messy, mediocre pilot has really informed all of the other screen stuff that I've worked on and informed my confidence. Yeah. And like, I have a, I have a development deal at the moment and I'm making a new show and that would never have happened without Ollie, mm. even though it's a meeting that it came from a general that I had before the pandemic. So before I met Ollie or anything, right. but it's definitely been like what I've learned throughout the course that meant that that development exec wanted to keep in touch with me and keep up with my work. What I thought was valuable was kind of writing pictures and treatments and these documents mm. that you don't necessarily think about. Yeah, it's just not something that the world ever really sees, is it? It's not yeah. something that like, he would share with us his first drafts compared to his like 10th yeah. draft as well. So being able to see how things change so much is really, really useful. Um, so that I found really just being able to because for me as a dyslexic artist like yeah. I find form for TV so hard right. like form is the hardest thing because like I say I'm a splurger and not a plotter and a, a play script can sort of look like anything um, but for film and TV there's a very set look for like how you describe a house, how you describe the interior and the exterior and what shots you mention and all of that. And just learning that was mm. completely invalu invaluable. Definitely. Like, it made me so much more confident when writing for mm. screen, like how to put an idea across on screen. Um, yeah, 100%. And yeah, got opportunities that I wouldn't otherwise have had. And like we were saying before, um, that community of writers, which we still talk, yeah. we still share ideas, is so valuable, I think. I fully agree. And I think especially in the pandemic, when we weren't meeting new people physically, yeah. to be able to make those connections with people digitally really helped. And to be able to have something to talk about, something to work towards, and have deadlines and goals also really mm. helped. Definitely, 100%. The last thing I'm going to ask you is, what advice would you give to someone who's just starting out in the industry? I would say, find your community. Find the people who whose values line up with yours, whose theatrical taste lines up with yours. And these might be like big megastar directors that you send emails to and say, I think you're great, but they are probably more likely to be the people sat next to you when you go to see that big megastar director show. Yeah. Chat to other people in the industry and find people at your level who can support you and you can support back and you can build your way into the industry together. Because like I said, the last thing you want is to get to that top echelon, whatever your career goal is, and realise you're the only person like you up there. Thank you so much. It's been really lovely to catch up with you. Um, My pleasure. I'd love to chat with you, Kieran. Let's do it every thank day. You. Right. <laughs> That's uh, just about it for this episode of In Lockdown But you can join me on the next episode. I'm not sure who the guest is going to be yet. But for now, it's goodbye. Ooh, that means it's an exciting surprise. Yes, I know. Cliffhanger ending. Cliffhanger <laughs> ending. Oh, my goodness. You learned so much from TV, Kieran. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> but for now, it's goodbye from me and bye from Tally. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of In Lockdown With. The podcast is written, produced, and curated by me, Kieran Fitzgerald. Thank you to all my guests for taking the time.
to appear on the show. If you enjoyed this episode of In Lockdown With, please consider liking or subscribing on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And I'll see you next time for another interview.